Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, vaccine records 300,000 doses in 24 hours. Unemployment down, but there is a catch. Josh Frydenberg joins me. The urgent message for Australians in Afghanistan. We'll have new details from that region and Perth's new pitch to host the 2021 AFL Grand Final. But first, Australia's 80% vaccine target has edged closer today. More than 16 million doses have now been delivered. 300,000 of them in a single day. Now, that is a new record. 80% of adults will be fully vaccinated, we're told, in 95 days by November 22. And that date is expected to move a little closer with 8.6 million more people aged 16 to 39 eligible for Pfizer from August 30. Now, I want to stress, do not make a booking yet. We will advise when bookings can be made. It's not today. Not today. Um, we will advise of when that time will come over the course of the, over the next week. Well, it was a day of records with 681 new COVID infections in New South Wales. That's the highest number in the pandemic. But it was also the state's biggest vaccine turnout in 24 hours with more than 110,000 jabs. Everything we can, we need to throw at reducing the case numbers. So whilst the high vaccination rates gives us those opportunities to live more freely, it is not in any way a comment that we shouldn't get the case numbers down. We absolutely need to. We need to turn the corner. Tom Hartley is live from St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney tonight. Tom, good evening to you. So what is the state most concerned about right now? Well, Michael, it really is that there are just so many unlinked cases, thousands of them and hundreds still under investigation every single day. At this point in time, the experts are saying that the situation is just deteriorating. And one of the country's leading epidemiologists described the situation here in New South Wales as a freight train hurtling towards a cliff. It's a pretty grim situation. He said that unless something will happen to soon to slam those brakes on. We could be in this mess right up until Christmas. We could be looking at lockdown until then. We're hoping that's not the case, of course. And that's why the New South Wales government we're hearing is looking at uh, tighter restrictions for those areas of concern that could include a nighttime curfew like they're seeing in other states in Australia. Now, another uh, grave concern is the developments further west out in the state's west, uh, particularly places like Dubbo and also the Indigenous community of Wilcannia. If, if it really takes off out there, resources are already stretched so thin, Michael, they really will struggle to keep on top of it. Yeah, and the, the infection rates in those areas, Tom, is that why the lockdown for regional New South Wales is going to be extended? Yeah, absolutely. So they, they announced today that they're going to extend that until August 28 to bring it in line with the, the lockdown here in Greater Sydney as well. And that'll also include restrictions, uh, limiting movement and also on who can leave home uh, and when and where they can go. Um, the idea is there that if they go hard early, they will prevent a situation like we're experiencing here in Greater Sydney. Now, Tom, I think the thing that everyone in New South Wales would like to hear about what's next, the exit strategy, where's it all going? And I think The Australian tonight has new reports surrounding freedoms for New South Wales residents when vaccine targets are reached. What's that about? 
Yeah, so what we can, uh, what we've read so far is that when vaccination, uh, 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 when vaccination rates across the state hit 70%, we're hearing that restaurants, bars and gyms will reopen to those people who are vaccinated and who can prove they're vaccinated, of course. Now, we'd already heard about a health and beauty, a hairdressers and the like being reopened, but um, that's something really to, to look forward to. Uh, we've been hearing so much from the Premier about, you know, what life might look like as we come out of lockdown and what yeah. living with Delta will look like. So this is some indication of it. She's yet to sign off on this plan. We will expect to hear more on that next week. But, I mean, quite frankly, I, I think a lot of us will say that we'll believe it when we see it at this point, Michael. True, but we need those details and uh, people need to look forward to something. So, Tom Hartley, thank you for that. Victoria recorded 57 new COVID cases. That's the highest number since September last year. But authorities are keen to stress it's not all bad news. 57 seems a very big number, but uh, when... Uh, the vast majority of those have been in isolation for their infectious period. That's exactly what we want. That's exactly the system working as it should work. But the story that sits behind those numbers is in fact more important than the numbers uh, alone. Let's go to our reporter, Christy Cooper, live at Flinders Street Station tonight. Christy, good evening to you. Now, these numbers come on Melbourne's 200th day under lockdown. Michael, 200 days and at least another two more weeks. But authorities are confident that they are getting this latest outbreak under control. Of the 57 new cases today, 41 of those were people in their 13th day of isolation, those routine tests. And two-thirds of all cases today came from Altaqua College. This is good news because it means there were cases that were picked up really early and isolated before they had a chance to pass that on to anyone else. In terms of other numbers today, we had three more cases linked to that now infamous engagement party in St Kilda East and unfortunately we had three mystery cases. They're people who lived in the suburbs of Glenroy, Ascot Vale and Doncaster. There is frustration tonight too for hundreds of people connected to a kindergarten in Glenroy West. There was a staff member there who'd also worked next door at the primary school which has been at the centre of a major outbreak. For whatever reason that staff member has refused to get tested even though they're a close contact and now, as a result, everyone else, young children, their families, all connected to the kinder, have to isolate. So the Premier says we are expecting some more day 13 tests uh, from today and tomorrow. So these numbers could stay high for a couple more days, Michael. No doubt. Now, what's this about a weekend protest? Police are warning people, please do not attend it. They certainly are. Up to a thousand people are expected to try to come into the city on Saturday for nationwide protests, a freedom rally they're calling it. However, Police Chief Shane Patton has urged people not to do that, saying his members will be out in force doing absolutely everything they can to try to prevent people coming into the city. There's only five reasons we're allowed to leave home and protesting is not one of them making it illegal. There were 6,000 police checks yesterday. Of those, 50 were with infringement notices for a range of different reasons, including being out after curfew, which, Michael, is exactly what we're doing tonight. Rest assured, we do have permits, but I tell you what, this is one of the most iconic places in Melbourne. I have never seen it looking like this before. Barely a soul around, aside from a few police officers, and it's, it's pretty sad, Michael. It is indeed. That's what curfew looks like. Just a couple of workers in the background there and you doing your job with the permits. So, Christy, thanks for showing us that. Appreciate it. A last-ditch attempt to try and shift the Queensland-New South Wales border south is fast running out of time. Our reporter Elliot Chipper is live in Brisbane tonight. Elliot, hello to you. Now, what do we know about this request? 
Good evening, Michael. Well, this certainly isn't a, a new idea or a new concept uh, and not the first time it's been raised during this pandemic. What it involves is shifting the Queensland-New South Wales border down to the Tweed River. Uh, that would certainly be a big lifeline for the 16,000 people that cross that border for work and business and school and uh, everyday life every single day. The Queensland government is understood to have proposed the idea to the New South Wales government. Our Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk today gave them until the close of business tomorrow to make a decision on shifting that border. A question was put to the New South Wales government in the press conference this morning. Given uh, the workload that they've got and, and the unfolding situation down there, clearly not high on their priority list, um, but they've said, uh, the Deputy Premier said that it won't happen, it shouldn't happen and will cause unintended consequences. So devastating news for all those people, business owners, teachers, students yeah. who aren't divided by this border, which literally goes right down the street. Um, terrible news, people sleeping on their floors in work. Uh, very tough situation down there, Michael. Oh, it gets so complicated and difficult, doesn't it? Now, the, the crossing the border, there's going to be some strict new rules coming into effect tomorrow. Elliot? That's correct. Uh, at the moment, only essential workers can come across the border from tomorrow. They're going to have to prove that, that they've had at least one dose uh, of their COVID vaccine. Uh, it's not understood how many essential workers that will affect who haven't had the vaccine in time. That definition of essential work is also going to be tightening from tomorrow. Uh, the Premier didn't give much details. More will be coming out tomorrow, but she's not happy with how many people are still no. crossing the border despite that essential worker classification. Also, more ADF personnel will be on the border from Wednesday. Uh, permission has been approved for 180 members uh, to man the border and stop more people coming across. Michael? All right. Thank you for that, Elliot Chipper in Brisbane. Today, the Treasurer announced that Australia's unemployment rate fell from 4.9% in the previous quarter to 4.6% in July. The jobless rate is actually at its lowest rate in 12 years, with the number of people out of work falling by 39,900. It all sounds like good news, but scratch a little deeper. And the reason for the fall? Well, more people gave up looking for work, dropping out of the labour market Altogether, the number of hours worked in the month of July fell by 3 million overall and slumped by 7% in New South Wales alone. I'm joined now from Canberra by the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Treasurer, thanks for joining the latest tonight. Good evening. Nice to be with you, Michael. Now, these figures only include a couple of weeks of lockdown in New South Wales. Some economists today saying the true rate of unemployment could be as high as 6%. In your opinion, just how skewed is the picture that the figures portray today? Well, it's not a full picture because, as you say, it just takes into account weeks two and three of the New South Wales lockdown. But importantly, it does underline that the Australian economy remains remarkably resilient. Normally, we'd be celebrating such a number, but with millions of Australians in lockdown tonight and the economy having been pretty severely hit by the consequences of those health restrictions, um, we need to understand fully uh, what is the, the, the data that came out today. You talk about the resilience of the national economy at the big mm. picture level and that is mm. true some of mm. our agricultural prices are good mining still mm. strong what about the corner shop economy the, the shop retailer the people that are paying rent with no income at all at the moment well, they are really doing it tough and they've done it tough not just for the last few weeks of the New South Wales or Victorian lockdowns, but they've done it tough over the course of this pandemic. It's important that this is a, a Team Australia moment. We all work together, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that is the momentum building around our vaccination program. In the last 24 hours, 309,000 jabs have been delivered. That's 215 a minute. It's a record number. 
number and we are moving towards that 70 80 percent vaccination rate for the nation which is of course the target that we're seeking and based on the doherty institute analysis it's at that time that the transmissibility of the virus reduces um, that stringent lockdowns we're told are unlikely and of course the number of people who are severely sick gets dramatically reduced as well the problem is with the vaccination figures at the moment and there's no doubt we've turned a corner it's getting mm. much better those numbers those mm. statistics are very very good but mm. many people don't know what it looks like at the end how uh, the messaging about how australia is going to live or learn to live with COVID is not clear there's no guarantee that state borders will be permanently lifted and not just snap back into place at the will of the local premiers um, i think that's a difficult problem at the moment and there's fear setting in what is fear doing to australia in the economy right now well michael Premiers will have no excuses when we get to that 70 and 80 per cent. They have signed up to the Doherty Institute um, analysis and modelling, and it does show uh, and this is the best medical advice available, not just in Australia, indeed, around the world. It does show that when you hit that 70% number, that stringent lockdowns become unlikely. They're the words of the Doherty Institute. The states, they can't count. They shouldn't have any expectation that there will be Commonwealth emergency economic assistance like we're rolling out the door at that point in time. We have to learn to live with the virus. We can't eliminate it. There will be cases. Mm. But Australians watching your program tonight need to know that is the light at the end of the tunnel. You get vaccinated, you make yourself safer, you make your family safer, but you also enable the economy to open up, which makes your job safer, and people can start to get about their lives in a COVID-safe way. I know you've got to go to the next interview, but let me ask you before you go, the subject of refugees. You're the son of refugees mm. yourself, Treasurer. Your personal feelings on the decision to accept only 3,000 Afghanistan refugees and your thoughts on that situation? Well, as the Prime Minister said today, um, that is a floor, not a ceiling. And we're continuing to evaluate the circumstances, uh, obviously, and the, our ability to, to provide more relief to more people. But that is not an insignificant number. 3,000 uh, places out of our humanitarian program, as you know, we've provided uh, support to more than 8,000 uh, Afghanis already uh, over recent years. I think Australians um, understand why we left but they're saddened by what's left behind mm. because it is a very tragic situation there in Afghanistan. All right, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. Dozens more Australian citizens, visa holders and asylum seekers have been rescued from Afghanistan on a British evacuation flight. Today, an alert was issued asking any more Australians still in the country to urgently make their way to Kabul airport to be evacuated. Getting there, however, is proving very difficult for many, as CNN's chief correspondent Clarissa Ward discovered. We've come to Kabul's airport to see the gauntlet people must pass through to fly out. You can hear gunshots every couple minutes. CNN, 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 CNN. Quickly, we are accosted by an angry Taliban fighter. Can I ask you a question? Excuse me. She, you say it's first. Cover my face? Okay. You were a translator? They all worked at American yeah, camps as translators for the Americans and they can't get into that airport. These Taliban fighters are a little upset with us. Let's keep going. We decide to leave and head for our car.
The fighter takes the safety off his AK-47 and pushes through the crowd. Stay behind him. Stay behind him. You can see that some of these Taliban fighters, they're just hopped up on adrenaline or I don't know what. It's a very dicey situation. Suddenly, two other Taliban charge towards us. You can see their rifle butt raised to strike producer Brent Swales. When the fighters are told we have permission to report, they lower their weapons and let us pass. Okay, now we're going. Get in the car. Larissa Ward there with a lot of fortitude on the streets of Kabul near the airport. For more, we bring in our Europe Bureau Chief Hugh Whitfield joins me live London now. Uh, Hugh, good evening to you. Some breaking news right now. British PM Boris Johnson has just spoken with Scott Morrison about the situation in Afghanistan. What do we know about that call, Hugh? Yeah, Michael, it's happened in the last couple of hours. Boris Johnson seeming to now to want to take somewhat of a lead among Western allies to bring people together to work out what they're going to do in Afghanistan. We have the Downing Street perspective of this phone call and we're told that both Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Johnson agreed that the immediate priority is evacuating nationals and former employees. Many, of course, are Afghan citizens. Uh, we understand that Scott Morrison thanked the UK for the RAF flight that took those 76 Australian and uh, Afghan visa holders uh, out of Kabul airport. But it's clear that there will be more pressure from the international community for Australia to do more, with Boris Johnson stressing the need to Scott Morrison to increase aid to Afghanistan and the resettlement of refugees, keeping in mind that Britain is looking to take at least 5,000 uh, refugees from Afghanistan this year and an aim to take 20,000 over the next couple of years. Australia, as you heard from the Treasurer a short time ago, saying the floor is 3,000. Michael, there was also some pressure, interestingly, too, from Boris Johnson uh, on carbon emissions uh, and Boris Johnson, we're told, underlining the importance of net zero uh, to Scott Morrison, so there'll be more pressure uh, on Canberra on that one too. All right, Hugh, and new missions are underway from British, rather, British and French forces to get more people to the airport as we speak? Yeah, look, as we've heard, that situation around the airport is pretty volatile with the Taliban setting up checkpoints and basically guarding it, uh, preventing people from getting through. We know now that British and French soldiers are launching missions into the suburbs of Kabul to try and retrieve not just their own citizens, but also those Afghans who've been granted the right to get on those planes and get out of Kabul. Now, the United States says it doesn't have the capacity to do that. It probably has the most uh, boots on the ground of any country though, which is a little bit surprising uh, for some of those allies who are sending their own people out into the suburbs of Kabul. Australia, of course, only has about 70 boots on the ground, so it's not really an option for our forces to do that. So what you kind of have a, is a situation where the US is kind of going it alone and everybody else is trying to work together, including with the Taliban, to get those people through those razor wire uh, checkpoints and into Kabul airport and then onto those planes. The consensus, though, that I'm getting from here in London is that the window is closing, mm. but the overarching aim right now, more than anything, is to get these evacuations done and then work out how they're going to handle the situation going forward, including any dialogue with the Taliban. Of course, the big fear is here that any day the Taliban could just, at a whim, completely close that airport and then it'll end, which is the big problem. So it is a race. All right, thanks for that breaking news and updates to there. Hugh Whitfield in London. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A military plane carrying a group of up to 100 Afghan nationals and Australians is expected to land in Perth in the early hours of tomorrow morning. Our reporter Joey Catanzaro is in Perth for us tonight. Joey, good evening to you. So what do we know about this repatriation flight? Michael, we're told it's the first plane carrying Australian passport and visa holders to fly out of Kabul yesterday via Dubai. It's expected to arrive here in the next few hours. So an early morning or late night arrival out of the hours of uncertainty into the safe haven of Australia. Now, we don't know the exact number of people on board, but we're told it's probably up to 100. They'll quarantine here at the Hyatt Hotel in Perth. Among them, a number of Afghan translators who helped our troops during the war. Now we're being told it's our turn to help them. This operation has been in the works since Saturday, so we're being assured it is COVID safe. And because it's over, above and beyond the international arrivals quota, it will not interfere with other Australians trying to get back home. It is a very special flight to Australia. Joey Catanzaro, thank you. Thank you. A fourth person's been charged over the alleged home invasion that almost cost Wallabies legend Todai Kefu his life. Police claim he and three family members were injured by intruders who tried to steal a car from their Brisbane home. Todai's wife, Rachel, is still in hospital, but we're told all doing well. And WA has officially made its pitch to host the AFL Grand Final at Perth's Optus Stadium. It's thought part of the proposal includes a parade down the Swan River. South Australia Premier Steve Marshall has also revealed his government's making a last-ditch attempt to host the event and additional finals games. With just five weeks to go, it's unclear when the AFL will make its decision. Welcome back. Time to take a look at the biggest stories of the week with marketing specialist Dee Madigan and journalist Carolyn Overington. Good evening to you both. Nice to have you with me. A little remotely, but good to have you here. Let's begin with some positive news. I think we need it. A bit of a tortured path to get here, but the vaccine rollout is speeding up. Carolyn, first to you. Does it give you some hope that perhaps there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel? It is absolutely magnificent news. So to, to meet the target of nearly 50% of Australians today having had one dose. And if you look at some of the graphs that are being presented, New South Wales, the largest state, looks ready to meet a, 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 an 80% target by sometime in the middle of September for one dose, which is really fantastic. We're looking at maybe another four weeks and it's not before time. That should be a passport to freedom. Dee, we heard today also at the end of the month, Pfizer being made available for anyone over 16, announced by the PM today. Uh, good news. Uh, there's someone in mandatory isolation right now, and you can explain <laughs> a bit about that if you like. How, does that make you feel well, any better? Look, yes, and I actually got my 16-year-old his first Pfizer yesterday. Ah, I have been news. screaming for it for ages because he works at McDonald's in Canberra, Bankstown, but he didn't qualify before because even though he worked in a hotspot, we were in, we were in the Burwood LGA, so it was like, no, no, you don't qualify. It's like, oh, my God, this is madness. So for me, a massive relief to get that first um, needle. Uh, had it been today, he wouldn't have been able to because, yes, we're in... Isolation for 14 days, which now, is That's in your home for 14 great. days, not in your area, in your home for 14 days. Yes, yeah, so the option was either my 11-year-old daughter had to stay in her bedroom 
for 14 days and only come out to use the toilet and we only have one bathroom, at which point I had to bleach the whole thing um, and just give her trays into the bedroom or we all go into um, isolation. For and this is because so, of close contact with a friend who's COVID. Oh, yeah, okay. It's a long story <laughs> yeah, and a cross We won't story. review up that much. <laughs> we won't go into that. Dee, I'm worried about what fear is doing to everyone at the moment. The daily numbers are striking fear into, to, to many, many people without there being a clear vision of what this is all going to end up looking like. The, the conversation hasn't shifted fast enough, in my opinion, to living with COVID and what it looks like. Do you share those concerns? Look, I, I do. I've almost stopped the 11 o'clock because it's kind of, it's getting me nowhere. And yeah. I think we need to sort of just, the pathway out of this, even if it is longer than we want it to be, at least people need to see it, I think. Otherwise, when you start to think Christmas time and that, and then you see the look on your kids' faces when you say, we're not going anywhere, you know, it's a little bit hard. So people need hope. Like, we need a reality check. We need to all do the right thing, but we need a bit of hope. Carolyn, what about that daily messaging? I know the hard numbers have to be delivered, and if, we, if they weren't delivered, then we'd be suspicious and it would lead to conspiracies if they weren't fully revealed. But Professor Mary Louise McClaw said an interesting thing to me the other day, not in an interview, we're in conversation. She said, those daily numbers need to be more granular. It's a good word. They, start, they need to reveal in those 600-odd number new, new cases every day what it actually means, how many people are severely ill or just at home or what living with COVID actually means so we can get an understanding of it. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, because at the moment you have very few people in hospital and you have very few deaths. I mean, every death, as we know, is a tragedy, but we have very few deaths from COVID in Australia. And when you start to compare it to the deaths from other things, throw the normal number of deaths from the flu, from cancer, from heart disease, from other things, the numbers are minuscule. Mm. So we do need to start putting things in perspective. Because we're not getting to zero. We're, no, we're never getting to zero. You know, the virus doesn't understand what a land border is. The virus is doing what viruses do. It is spreading as quickly as it can and it's trying not to kill the host. So I it's think though, this is different though, Caroline. Don't you think that with the Delta, we are seeing a lot of people in hospital. We're seeing ICUs full. This is quite different to last time, don't you think? Of course, Delta is different. It transmits more easily and it's transmitting more quickly to children as well. But nonetheless, we have to learn to live with it because it's in the whole world. So if Victoria, for example, says, oh, we're going to shut the border, then the first time a ship docks or a plane lands or somebody arrives in a truck with freight, it's going to be back. So you have to learn to live with it. And the only way to learn to live with it is to live realistically, which means in New South Wales population, about 9 million people, you're going to see a few thousand infections on any given day. And that message is not being transmitted to the public who is being told that COVID zero is realistic when it's not. It's just not. I, see, I, I disagree. I think the doctors are saying, do you know what, this one's different. It's clogging up our health system. And the problem is when you've got people with a delta version um, of, of the COVID in hospital, those are hospital beds other people can't get. And it's, it's a huge problem. So particularly, say, for a state you know, like, you know, Tasmania, if it was to come out there, where you've got a health system that struggles at the best of times. It's, it's OK in some states where you've got a lot of hospitals in a small state like that and you don't. That's a really different story. Well, Dee, on Tasmania, the, the tourism body there wants the state to consider banning unvaccinated people from travelling to the state. What's your thought on that? I, I, I actually think I understand entirely why Tasmanians, as I said, they can't get to normal hospitals, they can't get to specialists now. A, a Delta outbreak there, I think, would cripple their health system. Carolyn, would that work? 
Yeah, not just Tasmania. I think all states should say no vaccination, no travel. Certainly not overseas. We certainly won't be able to go overseas and come back unless you're double vaxxed. And you shouldn't be able to cross the border unless you're double vaxxed. There have to be some kind of measures that force people to get vaccinated because the way we prevent the kind of calamity that Dee is talking about is to make sure people are vaccinated. So if you have the disease, you're less likely to pass it on. You're less likely to get really sick. You're almost certain not to die from it. A tiny proportion of people die for it when they have been double vaccinated. So there has to be incentives, and they include carrot and stick. So you want a lottery, but you also want to tell people you're not going to get sick. There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, and a lot of concern. Let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute. As we go to where Australia is sending another RAAF plane in to, to try and rescue some more people, with the PM announcing temporary visas for 3,000 non-Australian residents who were being brought home. Now, Dee, in contrast, Britain will take more than 20,000 Afghan refugees in the next five years. Do we need to do more? Yeah, and look, you know, to the Prime Minister's credit, he did say this was the floor, not yeah. the ceiling, and I hope that's true. If you look at Australia's refugee intake over 10 years, we take, I think, 0.8% of the world's um, amount of refugees. We're not, we don't do, I think, our fair share, and this is a chance to do that, so it'd be nice to see us sort of step up and do it. Carolyn, I guess in contrast, 1989, uh, after Tiananmen Square, Bob Hawke offered asylum to 42,000 Chinese students. Um, is a big change. Can you compare the two? Should we be taking more? I know. In some ways, I think that was our finest moment or certainly one of our finest moments as a country. And when Bob Hawke died, I remember being asked by the newspaper I work for to go out and talk to some of the children of the Tiananmen Square children who were here. So, of course, they've grown up now. They've got families. They're Australian. And they had... Uh, their kids, their grandkids hoisted up on their shoulders. They were beaming for the cameras. They, were, they felt like mm. they had been given a real chance at life, a real chance at freedom, a real chance at um, creating something in Australia that they wouldn't have been able to do at mm. home. I think we should take more of the Afghanistan, Af Afghan people who helped us during the war. We should take more Hong Kongers immediately, the way yep. Britain, is, Britain is doing. There are refugees all around the world that we could be rehousing at this time, and we're not. And it's always been our greatest strength as a country our ability to welcome new people. And particularly after what we've all been through with COVID, what a great way to have a new beginning. Absolutely. New Absolutely. Yeah. Good positive note to end on. I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> Dee, Carolyn, Dee, good luck in your 14 days. Well, at least you're captive now. We'll be able to talk to you every week for the next few <laughs> I've, weeks. I've got a treadmill. I've got the treadmill arriving tomorrow. So maybe next week I will do it while running. That's, on the that's a promise. We want you to see <laughs> yeah. that. We want to see that. Good oh, luck, Dee. Good luck. Well. Thank you. Thanks. Good luck. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Well, now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Yesterday's brief reprieve on local markets was decisively snuffed out today, with the region swimming in a sea of red. Sentiment is bound up with fears shared by investors around the world that Delta will strike a meaningful blow to economic growth. Those fears weren't helped by gentle hints from the Federal Reserve overnight that is planning to start pulling back stimulus in the coming months. Wall Street is also pointing towards another lower open tonight. 
Oil continues to slip on mounting fears that Delta will crimp the rebound in travel. That's been seen so far during the Northern Hemisphere summer. And the Aussie dollar has taken another leg lower. It's now dropped under 72 US cents. Michael. Thank you, Gemma. Well, Polish javelin thrower Maria Andrzejczyk couldn't have been prouder to win a silver medal at this year's Olympic Games. But after she read the story of an eight-month-old baby boy suffering from a heart defect, Maria, who's a cancer survivor herself, doesn't hesitate to auction that prize medal to help his family. On Monday, the athlete announced that a leading convenience store had won the medal auction, paying $500,000 so that the family could travel from Poland to California for some specialist surgery. The store chain paid the money and promptly handed the medal back to its rightful owner. It's a good story. Thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Thanks for your company. Have a great night.